Hello and welcome to another episode of the Overcoming Life Podcast. Hey guys, we've been talking about the restoration of all things and why God is going to save all of creation. That no one gets left behind like Kirk Cameron has uh, so um, valiantly has declared in his movies. Uh, no one is going to... That's all crazy stuff, guys. That is the imaginations of men running wild. We had talked about in our last episode um, with regards to the God God saving all things. Um, we had talked about the, the purpose of resurrection. And um, the point we want to make here is when you read the word everlasting or turn on the Bible, you can't take these translations at face value. The Hebrew word olam and its Greek equivalent, aeonian, properly mean an age or an indefinite period of time. The Hebrew thinking in Jesus' day looked forward to the coming of the Messiah in which he would rule the earth with his people in a great Sabbath millennium. And this idea was expressed in the, f- in the phrase, the age, and the Aeonian kingdom. And we see this in Second Peter 1 verse 11. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal is Aeonian kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. The things of his kingdom, they have no end, of course, right? His rulership, they have no end, of course. And we read this in Luke chapter 1, verse 33. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. But the kingdom itself is the final age before the great white throne judgment introduces a completely scenario, a completely different scenario in the earth. And this comes forth in the Hebrew phrase, olam va'ad, to the age and beyond. And it is used in Exodus chapter 15, verse 18, Psalms 9, 5, Psalms 10, 16, Psalms 45, 6, and Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. Jerome's translation, which has been misinterpreted by Augustine, has completely and largely eradicated the understanding of the doctrine of ages from the Latin church. And that misunderstanding has carried into most of our modern translations as well. But there are at least four translations which restore the true meaning of Aeon and Aeonian. So... That being said, some Latin ch- church fathers, like Augustine, agreed, um, disagreed. Um, well, I guess he disagreed with this. So there's a study of the early Greek church fathers in um, one of this guy's books showing that they assumed, they assumed that the judgment of the wicked was to be temporary. Early Greek church fathers assumed that the judgment of the wicked was to be temporary and its purpose was to purify and cleanse sinners so that they could be saved. Latin church fathers like Augustine disagreed, believing that the judgment was eternal in the modern sense of the word. But ultimately, the Roman church later tried to reconcile those contradictory teachings. They concluded that some people went to purgatory, quote unquote, while other people went to hell. In both cases, however, 
They literalize the fire rather than seeing it in terms of the divine law. You have to understand the fire in um, its symbolic context. When you come to understand how we got where we are today, you can much more easily see the mistakes of the past and make the necessary corrections in your thinking and in our thinking together as a body and as a people um, to move forward into the true understanding. So, um, you know, remember, guys, the Aeon, let's let's talk a little bit about what the early what the Greek church fathers believed. So, Irenaeus of Lyons in Gaul, 120 to 202 A.D. So we have to understand the early church fathers, they didn't concern themselves with in-depth theology, but they focused upon the persons of Christ, his work um, that he accomplished and how he fulfilled biblical prophecy in the law and in the prophets. So the terms that they use instead of um, of the judgment to come was essentially the same terms as the writers of the New Testament. And they didn't necessarily feel the need, of course, during that time to determine their to define that term specifically because um, and even though that there's no way to prove what they believed except by their use of the word aeonios. So um, we're going to check out what this term means and, and go a little bit in depth here, guys. So this is a, a little bit of a history lesson for you. Some of you guys don't like history. Some of you guys don't know history. Some of you guys maybe just weren't taught it and maybe you don't know if you like it or don't or not. But I tell you, it's it's a beautiful thing when you find out that history um that history and the, the narrative that we are challenging, the history shows a different picture. So in the second century, we begin to see some evidence as to how they generally understood the fiery judgment that we now, that modern teachers call hell, um, which is just, it's just so absurd as we, and we're gonna be talking about it. So Arrhenius was the church leader from Lyons which was a city in southern Gaul, which is now in France, and he died in 202 A.D. with thousands of fellow Christians during the persecution of Roman Emperor uh, Severus. He wrote five books called Against Heresies, and they are in the Anti-Nicene Fathers, uh, Volume 1. Okay, He often writes of an Aeonian judgment and closes his monumental work with a commentary on 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25 and 26, and this is what he says. I'm quoting this. Quote, For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For in the times of the kingdom, the righteous man who is put, who is upon the earth, shall then forget to die. But when he saith all things shall be subdued to him, it is manifest that he is expected who did put all things under him, excuse me, accepted, who did put all things underneath him. That is, God would be ex the, ex the exception. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. John, therefore, did distinctly foresee the first excuse me, resurrection of the just and the inheritance in the kingdom of the earth and what the prophets have prophesied concerning it harmonize with his vision. 
For the Lord also taught these things when he promised that he would have the mixed cup with his new disciples in the kingdom. The apostle too has confessed that the creation shall be free from the bondage of corruption so as to pass into the liberty of the sons of God. And in all these things and by them all, the same God, the father is manifested who fashioned man and gave promise of the inheritance of the earth to the fathers who brought it. That's that is a creature forth from bondage at the resurrection of the just and fulfills the promise for the kingdom of his son. And in this, guys, and that is end quote, and that is page 567 in this book, um, The Antinician Fathers, Volume 1. Here we see that Irenaeus understood that creation itself would ultimately be set free from corruption and passed to the liberty of the sons of God. Again, in one of Irenaeus's book that is, uh, seems to be now lost, we find another author quoting from it, giving us what is called a fragment. And there are 55 fragments which are attributed to Irenaeus. Fragment number 39 reads, Christ, who was called the Son of God before the ages, was manifested in the fullness of time in order that he might cleanse us through his blood, who were under the power of sin, preventing us as pure, excuse me, presenting us as pure sons to his Father. If we yield ourselves obediently to the chastisement of the Spirit, and in the end of time, he shall come to do away with all evil and to reconcile all things in order that there may be an end of all impurities. Here is a clear, it is super clear, guys, that Irenaeus believed in the reconciliation of all things at the end of time. So when Irenaeus speaks of Aeonius' judgment of the wicked, we are inescapably drawn to the conclusion that he did not think that judgment would continue for all of time. Clement of Alexandria, and we're going to go ahead and go through these a little bit rapidly. Um, you know, some of these writings from the early church fathers, um, they are, they can be thick. They're, they're, they're very wordy. So you kind of have to, you know, you kind of have to focus on something specific and see, okay, what is it, what is it actually saying? But, um, generally there's at least a line or two that makes his point very clear. And obviously the line that we're speaking of is in the end time, he shall come to do away with all evil and to reconcile all things in order that there may be an end of all impurities, which means that he does not believe um, that there would be an eternal judgment in the way that we uh, modern teachers teach it today. Clement of Alexandria was born in Athens, Greece, and he moved to Alexandria, Egypt, where he became the head of the church from 190 to 203. He fled for his life in 203 during the persecution of, of Roman Emperor Severus and spent his remaining years teaching in Antioch and in Palestine. In Stramata, Clement wrote this, God does not wreak vengeance, for vengeance is to return evil for evil, and God only punishes with an eye to the good. Wow. Um, Clement also comments on Paul's statement in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9 through 11, which speaks, says uh, that Jesus is the Savior of all men, especially of the believers. In his comments, Clement shows that he understood Paul to mean that there was a general salvation of all men, as well as a particular salvation and reward for believers. In Stramata, we find this, Wherefore also... All men are his, some through knowledge, and others not yet so. 
um, dot, dot, dot. For he is the Savior, not the Savior of some and of others not, nor can he who is Lord of all and serves above all the will of the good and the mighty of Father ever be hindered by another. And how is he the Savior and Lord, if not the Savior and Lord of all? But he is the Savior of all of those who believed and the Lord of those who have not believed till being enabled to confess him. They obtain the particular and appropriate book which comes by him. Christ is the first administrator of the universe who by the will of the Father directs the salvation of all. The one only almighty good God from the eon and for the eon saving by his son. For all things are arranged with a view to the salvation of the universe by the Lord of the universe, both generally and particularly. Do you guys understand this? Are you guys reading this? I know it's kind of thick, but stay with me. Clement then speaks of the nature of the fiery judgment at the great white throne where unbelievers will be judged. This is what he says. But necessary corrections through the goodness of the great overseeing judge, both by attendant angels and through various preliminary judgments or through the great and final judgment compel egregious sinners to repent. It was Clement's opinion, guys, that the judgment would compel egregious sinners to repent. We're not trying to quibble in this, but, um, you know, the writer of this book specifically, he says that he slightly differs with Clement. He says that any time a sinner is compelled to repent, the change is only superficial. The judgment of the law can only constrain the sinner's behavior and limit his actions to what is lawfully acceptable. Only the love of God will change the heart and cause the sinner to truly repent. So Clement writes again about the, the nature of God's fiery judgment. In Stramata, looks like 7, 6. Um, so it's V, bar, bar, I, I, comma, 6, comma. Quotes, we read, we say that the fire purifies not the flesh, but sinful souls, not an all not an all devouring vulgar fire, but the wise fire, as we call it, the fire that pierced the soul which passes through it. Clement writes in Ecclesi in ECL dot prof um it looks like twenty four four that the fire is wise. This is what he says. Fire is conceived of as a ben benefice, beneficent, and a, excuse me, a beneficent, yep, and strong power, destroying what is base, preserving what is good. Therefore, the fire is called wise by the prophets. Clements writes in the instructor, 1.8, that the purpose of the fire is to restore sinners. Punishment is in its operation like medicine. It dissolves the hard heart, purges away the filth of uncleanliness, and reduces the swellings of pride and haughtiness, thus restoring its subject to a sound and healthful state. Again, he writes in Stramata. Um, this is 7.3.17. At any rate, even suffering is found to be useful alike in medicine and in education and in punishment and by means of it, characters are improved for the benefit of mankind. Finally, Clement's commentary in 1 John, he writes this on 1 John 
chapter 1, verse 5. He says, and in him there is no darkness at all. That is, no passion, no keeping up of evil, respecting anyone. He destroys no one but gives salvation all. That's as clear as I can, I can make it for you guys. And on 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, it says, not only for our sins, and his commentary is, that is, for those of the faithful is the Lord, the propitiator. Um, does he say, but also for the whole world, he indeed saves all, but some he saves converting them by punishments. Others, however, who follow voluntarily, he saves with dignity of honor so that every knee should bow to him of things in heaven or things on earth and things under the earth, that is, angels and men. So you see, guys, Clement clearly believes in the salvation of all men back to God. Some, he says, are reconciled voluntarily, and these are those who believe in Christ during the ages prior to the first resurrection. Others, he says, will be saved by the means of punishment. And I don't, um, we're not exactly sure what Greek word Clement was using, but we, um, and I myself would use the word judgment rather than punishment, in order to better manifest the purpose of the divine law, which is that fire. We'll talk about one more person, guys. Origen, who was a student of Clement, who became the head of the school in Alexandria after Clement was forced to flee. And in Antonician Fathers, in page 3, the introduction to the writings of Gregory uh, Thaumaturgus, the editors tell us this. Alexandria continues to be the head of Christian learning. We've already observed the, con the continuity of the great Alexandrian school, how it arose, how Pantaneus beget Clement, Clement beget Origen, so Origen beget Gregory, and so the Lord has provided for the spiritual generation of the church's teachers age after age from the beginning. Truly the Lord gave to Origen a holy seed better than natural sons and daughters. Origen is well is more well known than Clement or Pantheus because he produced the first real systematic theology in the early church. It's called Principles. And so later he became the lightning rod of, the, of his opponent's wrath. So the doctrine of restoration of all things has been mislabeled originism as if to imply that he invented the teaching. But he obviously didn't because he, uh, he was a student of Clement. And of course this can't be further from the truth as every good church historian knows. To include all that Origen writes about the nature of God and the duration of God's fiery judgment would take a huge book. But we are going to take a look at a, a couple of different things. In his book against Celsius, um, Roman numeral uh, 6, 13, he writes this. The sacred scripture does indeed call our God a consuming fire in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, and says that the rivers of fire go before his face in Daniel chapter 7, verse 10, and that he shall come as a refiner's fire and purify the people in Malachi 3, verse 2 through 3. As therefore God is a consuming fire, what is it that is to be consumed by him? We say it is wickedness, and whatever proceeds from it, such as is figuratively called wood, hay, and stubble. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, we see this language, which denote the evil works of man. Our God, he says, is a consuming fire in this sense, and he shall come as a refiner's fire to purify rational nature from the alloy of wickedness and other impure matter which has adulterated the intellectual gold and silver, consuming 
whatever evil is admixed in all the soul. So Origen, like most Christians in the second century, seems to have lost the knowledge of biblical law, unfortunately. So he seems to think that the fire is painful to the sinner. Um, and this may simply be because Origen held what is called the doctrine of reserve, believing that certain truths ought to be held in secret. It may be, then, that he taught in public that the fiery judgment upon sinners was physically painful, though temporary, but in private he might have thought otherwise. And we're not exactly sure because this is obviously a matter for debate. But in speaking of the duration of the fiery judgment, Origen writes this in his commentary in the epistle to the Romans. Um, 8.11, Roman number O. Yeah, 8, 11. This is in his commentary to the epistles in Romans. He says, but how long is how long this purification, which is wrought out by penal fire shall endure or yeah, penal fire shall endure for or for how many eons shall it torment sinners? He only knows to whom all judgment is committed by the father. Again, Origen writes in First Principles, um, Roman numeral 1, 6 and 3. And so it happens that some in the first, others in the second, and others even in the last times, through their endurance of great and more severe punishments of long duration, extending, if I may say so, over many eons, are by these very stern methods of correction renewed and restored. This is an, ex an example of how Origen taught that the penal fire would torment sinners for many eons, and certainly he did not understand the concept of the Jubilee and how it mandated a limitation of all debt or liability for sin. In this way, we obviously differ from Origen's teachings, for we view the divine law as judgment, not punishment or torment. Nonetheless, we are in agreement that the goal of this fiery judgment is not to destroy sinners, but to restore them to God. Um, there is also Novation of Rome, who says um, in De Regula Fide, wrath and indignation of the Lord, so-called, are not such passions as bear those names in man, but that they are operations of the divine mind directly and solely for our purification. Didymus the Blind in 308 to 395 A.D. says in D. Span, um, he says, for although the judgment at times and inflicts tortures and anguish on those who merit them, yet he who more deeply scans the reasons of things, perceiving the purpose of his goodness, who desires to amend the sinner, confesses him to be good. He who is our Lord and Savior inflicts on us everything that may lead us to salvation, inflicting on us according to his mercy, yet doing this in his judgment. In his commentary on First Peter, Peter, Didymus the Blind says, As mankind by being reclaimed from their sins, are to be subject to Christ in the dispensation appointed for the salvation of all, so the angels will be reduced to obedience by the correction of their vices. Gregory of Nazianzen, the bishop of Constantinople, in 325-390, to he says this in his book, um, he says this, of all the church fathers, excuse me, of all the fathers of the church, he was the only one to be granted after his death the title of theologian, which until his time was reserved for an apostle, John of Patmos. And Gregor Gregory uh, was educated in Alexandria and in Athens, along with his friend 
Basil, and they compiled a collection of Origen's writings. He ultimately became the Bishop of Constantinople and was known as one of the four Eastern doctors of the church. Robert Payne writes in his book, 179, uh, The Fathers of the Eastern Church, that Gregory, again, um, he was a theologian. Gregory wrote this about the Lake of Fire. These apostates, if they will, may go our way, which indeed is Christ, but if not, let them go their own way. In another place, perhaps, they shall be baptized with fire, that last baptism, which is not only very painful, but also enduring also, which eats up, as it were, hay, all defired matter, and consumes all vanity and vice. The Gregory, Bishop of Nyassa, uh, from 335 to 395 A.D., uh, Gregory, this Gregory, was the younger brother of Basil, uh, the friend of Gregory of Nazian. Nazi, Nazianzin, Nazianzin, who we just talked about. He was the bishop of Nyassa, and this is what uh, Robert Payne says of him in his book, The Ch Fathers of the Eastern Church, on page 168 and 169. Of the three Cappadocian fathers, Gregory of Nasia is the one closest to us, the least proud, the most subtle, the most uh, committed to the magnificence of men. So obviously he's a good guy. In Gregory's um, oration on 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28, uh, 32 through 44, where Paul talks about all things being restored back to God, he writes this. So I begin by asking, what is the truth that the divine apostle intends to convey in this passage? It is this. In due course, evil will pass over to non-existence. It will disappear utterly from the realm of existence. Divine and uncompounded goodness will encompass within itself every rational creature. No single being created by God will fail to achieve the kingdom of God. That evil is now present and everything will be consumed like a base metal melted by the purifying flame. And then everything which derives from God will be as it was in the beginning before it ever had received an admixture of evil. In 40, it says, This is the ultimate goal of our hope, that nothing should be left in opposition to the good, but that the divine life should permeate everything and abolish death from ever being, from every being. The sin from which we, excuse me, the sin from which, as we have already said, death secured its hold over men, having already been destroyed. And again, here he quotes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22 through 28, ending with God will be all in all. In 44, uh, that last phrase which speaks of God coming to be in all by becoming all to each clearly portrays the non-existence of evil. Obviously, God will be in all only when no trace of evil is found to be in anything. For God cannot be in what is evil. So either he will not be in all, and some evil will be left in things, or if we are to believe that he is in all, then that belief declares that there will be no evil, for God cannot be in what is evil. In his commentary on Psalms fifty four seventeen, he writes about the divine judgment and its purpose to restore mankind, saying this, The Lord will, in his judgment, destroy the wickedness of sinners, not their nature, wickedness being thus destroyed, and its imprint being left in none, we shall all be fashioned after Christ, and in all that one character shall sign, shine, which was originally imprinted on our nature. All right, guys. Um, there is so much more here. Victorinus, Jerome, Bishop of Bethlehem, 
John Christum, Titus, Bishop of Bostria, Ambrose of Milion. All of these people, keep in mind, have spoken of a restoration of all things, um, a judgment that does not last forever, a fire that does not um, eternally burn people, and they were all before the um, the fifth century, the fifth, yeah, uh, yeah, the fifth century. So, blessing to you guys. I hope uh, some of this historical information touches you in a little bit. And uh, next episode, we will um, we will get a little bit more into, um, well, we'll get a little bit more into uh, the restoration of all things and. Um, but I wanted you guys to understand that there is lots, lots, and lots of evidence that points to, um, the fact that these early church fathers, the Greek church fathers, they assumed that the judgment of the the wicked was just to be temporary, that its purpose was to purify and to cleanse the sinners so that they could be saved. Blessed you guys, and, uh, we'll see you next episode.